So glad to be Romans. We're back in Romans. We're at Romans 6 through 8. Um, get your Bibles. Get your electronic devices. Uh, Tupac Shakur. Better known as Two. Pac, right? P-A-C. Sold over 75 million records worldwide. He's listed and ranked as the greatest and most influential rapper of all time. Uh, Rolling Stone on its 100 greatest artist list of all time. He's ranked 86. Uh, Tupac grew up in a world of violence and injustice. To speak to it, he um, turned his creative mind to rapping. Rapping about the brokenness of the world around him. One of his first hits was about Brenda, a teenage girl who became pregnant because of violence and abuse done to her. Uh, He saw the tragedy in a world where abuse and violence just got lost in the shuffle. It just didn't get much attention, and yet he couldn't help but look at it and focus on it and sing about it and kind of put it right in your face. And yet through fame and circumstance, he became a player in that violence as well. A lot of his life was fueled by anger and pride. On September 7, 1996, Tupac was murdered in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas at the corner of the intersection of Flamingo Road and Cavill Lane. He was only 25 years old. Uh, Tupac had a bad death. Is there ever a good death? Is there ever a good death? Paul says, yes, there is such a thing as a good death. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So reading from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Michelle. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would uh, make this page come alive. We ask that your words uh, would ring with wonder. They would echo um, with incredible sound, with a music that touches the very heart of reality. Would you awaken us by the power of your word? Clarity to the mind, realness to the heart. Shine on the page. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're back in Romans. Last spring, we looked at Romans 1 through 5. So if you um, 
there are messages that are on that website if you're going through some sort of uh, anxiety separation from those sermons. If you do not feel complete without Romans 1 through 5 in your life, you can go to the website and you can listen to them to your heart's content. If you're just joining us and you haven't heard 1 through 5 and you need to do that because you're that kind of a person, you can't move on to 6 through 8 unless you've looked at 1 through 5. They're on the website. You can go do that. Uh, the big idea for 1 through 5 was what? Do you remember? What was Paul's big idea? The big idea is what is the gospel? That's what 1 through 5 was all about. He unpacked the wonders of the gospel, the wonders of a received righteousness, not an achieved righteousness, the wonders of having good news, something done for you, not good advice, something you do, the reality of a Jesus performance, not a you and me performance. That was 1 through 5. And now in 6 through 8, he's going to take the wonders of what is the gospel and make it real to your life. How do you experience the gospel? That's Romans 6 through 8. What is the work of God accomplished through the gospel in your life? That's 6 through 8. What is real life change all about? How would you know what real life change is all about? What does it look like? What does it entail? Um, that's what 6 through 8 is all about. So this is a, we're going to go a lot of places. And it's going to be intense in some places. It's going to be thrilling in some places. It's going to be scary in some places. It's going to be like you're walking or hiking a, a kind of rig- rigorous mountain trek. So let's get started. Let's look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Got it? At the end of Romans 5, verse 20, Paul says this, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what's verse 1 doing? It's responding to that. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He's anticipating a response to that radical notion of grace. He's just talked about the wonders and the radicalness, the unbelievableness of grace in 1 through 5. And now it's, how do you respond to that? And what's an anticipated response to it? Well, Paul had his opponents, and some of his opponents really did like good advice. They didn't want to get off the good advice. You could say they were addicted to good advice. They loved good advice. Good good advice was how they could measure themselves and know how they're doing and keep track of how other people are doing. And so they had, he had opponents. So if he's responding to his opponents in verse 1, he might have a little edge to it, or they might have a little edge to the question. It could go something like this. Paul, if salvation is by grace alone, then why be good at all? Why not sin your heart out? If it's all grace, Paul, what motivation do I have at all to do or be good? Uh, Voltaire, the French skeptic, said, God will forgive, that is his business. The English poet W.H. Auden said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Right? So if salvation is by grace alone, Paul, why be a good person? Why not just sin your heart out? If that is who he's responding to in verse 1, I think he would respond this way. He might respond it by saying, what? 
you don't think you don't already sin your heart out? His second response might be, did you realize, though, that embedded in your very question is something sinister? Something that's so deep and so dark because it's all about you. If our motivation to be good and not send our heart out is to earn a blessing and a reward and to avoid punishment and loss, then it's all about me. See, God calls us to something that's incredibly higher than that. He calls you and me to be good and to do good because it's good, beautiful, and true. It's reality for goodness sake, not for our sake. And so if we have a whole system that's built around being good and and not being bad and not sending your heart out because we have some notion that we're going to earn and get some sort of blessing, (laughs) whether it's temporal or eternal, or we're going to avoid some sort of loss and punishment, whether it's temporal or eternal, then it's incredibly selfish. So even in the question, it's completely self-absorbed. It's completely sinister. So he might say that, but you know what? I don't think he's responding to his opponents. I think he's actually responding to a normal, everyday, struggling person who wants to know about how to change. That's who I think he's responding to. So you look at it, how do, people, how do real people change? He just talked about a grace salvation in one through five. What does that have to do with changing your life? That's the question that we're all asking. Okay, so this is the gospel. Wow. Well, what difference does it make? How is that supposed to change my life? How is that the engine in the Christian life? How do real people change? Well, Paul's answer is found in verse 2. Do you see it? It's stunning. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Notice what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying, die to sin, people. Okay, are you struggling with revenge and rage? Die to sin. Are you struggling with pornography or romance? Die to sin. Are you struggling with control in your life and anxiety? Die to sin. Are you struggling with needing people too much? Too consumed about what they think about you? You walk into a room and your antenna is just buzzing. How am I being perceived? Paul is not saying die to sin, people. There's no imperative in here. There's no good advice in here. There's not even an exhortation to be better or do better or die to sin. What it says is, How can we who died to sin still live in it? He gives gospel. He gives good news. He gives grace. If you still have a printed Bible, grab a pencil and underline the word died. In the original language, that is a completed action in the past. It's something that's been done, something that's over, a once and for all action already accomplished. It's finished. You died to sin. And don't miss this. Being dead to sin in verse two is not something, it's something, 
It's something to be believed. It's not something to be achieved. If there's a call here, the call is believe it. It's it's done, it's finished. The preeminent scholar today in Romans is a guy named Douglas Moo, and he says that what's already done for the Christian in their struggle for life change that makes living in sin um, a reality is this. He says, living in sin is an impossibility to be recognized, not a possibility to be avoided. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, verses three through five, Living in sin is an impossibility to be recognized, not a possibility to be avoided. If you're a normal, real person struggling with life change, what do you need to believe? What do you need to deeply recognize according to Paul? Answer, you died to sin. Completed action, finished, done, over, and you haven't done a thing. You died to the dark realm of sin. Verse two, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, There's a guy named John Owen. He's a great Puritan. He's written, his works are in these volumes. They're about this thick, and there's like 16 of them. And it's really, really small print. Like if you were to go on one page, I have to wear my, my, uh, what do you call these things? The bifocals on top of the magnifying glass, basically. And you, you, if you were to take the print and put it into normal print today, the book would be this big. He wrote a whole book called The Dominion of Sin. And he would describe what takes place in verse two is that the dominion of sin is broken. You have been taken out of the universal hold and tyranny and captivity and power and authority and dark Lord realm of sin, you're out of it. You died to it. Sin's complete control is broken. Its sinister power is over. The bottom line, you're no longer a slave to sin. I mean, look at verse six and then to verse seven, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died, died to what? Sin's dark realm, sin's complete control, sin's universal power and rule and reign, Mordor, right? It's dead, it's gone. You've been set free from it. Luther, if Luther was here, he'd say, you know what he'd say? He'd say, sin's power is like a serpent, a deadly deadly, powerful serpent. Jesus' death cuts the head off the serpent, kills it, dethrones it, cuts off its reign and its rule. Have you ever killed a snake, cut off its head? What's left? There's a saying that we all know, running around like a what? Chicken with your head cut off. How in the world do chickens still run with a head cut off? What's left when sin's power is cut off is its writhing death throes. That's what's left. 
Jesus' death cuts off the head of the serpent. You're no longer under the domain, the domination, the complete control, the kingdom of the dark Lord. You're out. We can say it this way too. You can picture it this way. When was Nazi Germany definitively defeated in Europe? May 8th, 1945, on VE Day, Victory Over Europe Day, when Nazi Germany signed the unconditional surrender, unconditionally surrendered to the Allies. Is that the day? Maybe. You know what historians say? On D Day, June 6, 1944, when the greatest land sea invasion in the history of the world happened, and we landed and cut the head off the serpent. All that was left after D Day was a march to Berlin writhing, death throes, mop-up battles. Deadly? You bet. But Germany's reign and rule and dominion and domination over Europe was over. Paul's answer to our struggle for life change is a good death. You died to sin. You are free from sin's universal captivity and control over your life. Period. Finished. Done. And you haven't done a thing. How does a good death help us struggle for life change? In your struggle for life change, how does that kind of good death, that verse 2, how does it help you? How does a good death help us, strengthen us, encourage us in our struggle with sin? Here's the first answer. A good death is already epic life change. It's incredible life change. It's definitive. It's comprehensive. It's universal. And you haven't done anything yet. The moment you become a Christian, which is all the baptism talk in three through five, the moment you participate in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the moment that happens when you believe that and trust in him and he becomes your savior, an epic, cosmic change has just taken place in your life. D-Day has begun. The march to Berlin is on its way. You've already won. You begin your struggle for life change as a winner a struggle you can't lose. Scottish pastor, theologian, seminary professor, and popular author Sinclair Ferguson, he describes this epic change this way. He said, Paul's not saying to die to sin is to be immune to sin. So if you're hearing me up here and you're hearing this dominion talk and this control talk and this reigning talk and you're thinking, good night, I, I still struggle with sin. Please hear me. Uh-huh. What else is new? We're on a march to Berlin. The enemy is still in its death throes. Still present. Heads cut off. But you are still broken and sinful and will be until you're in heaven. But Paul's point here is not saying you're immune to sin. So what's your problem? He goes on to say, Paul is not saying to die to sin is to be free of the struggle with sin. 
Like you shouldn't be struggling with sin. Do you know how many theologies are out there today that are trying to tell you you can be free from the struggle with sin? You can live a victorious Christian life. That you can somehow live above a struggle with sin. That's not what Paul is saying here. And that is insanity. J.I. Packer said that kind of theology nearly drove him insane, like clinical kind, like lock you up kind, and put you in a facility kind, he said. And you know who got him out of it? John Owen, the dominion of sin. Paul is saying, Sinclair Ferguson says, not to be immune to sin, not to be free from the struggle of sin, Paul is saying, you have died to sin, therefore struggle with sin. Let the games begin. To be experiencing a good death means you are now in a struggle with sin for the very first time. And you are in a struggle you can't lose. If you are outside a good death, a good death is not a part of you. Verses three through five, Jesus' death is not your death. You're not united to that death. You're, you're not trusting in that death. Then you are in a struggle with sin. You cannot win. You just can't. Sin is way too powerful. It's the dark, hostile force over every human being. That's what we saw in Romans 5, remember? You, you we're all born into Adam's descendants and we're born into the dark realm. We're born with such power sin has over us that we don't even know we're, we're under its power. It's so insidious and it's so sinister that we don't even know we're in it. We can't even understand ourselves rightly. We don't know what we do and why we do what we do. Sin is so powerful that we actually want it. Sin is not like making us do stuff like we're a victim. Sin is so powerful, we want it. We love it. We hope in it. We look to it to be our savior. We think it can, con- we think it can give us control in life. We think it can give us security in life. We think it's going to love us and help us and heal us and give us cosmic happiness and flourishing That's how powerful it is. One of the metaphors about sin in the Bible is blindness. And what that means is we don't even see it. We don't know it's there. That's how debilitating and dark the control is. We don't even know it's there. There is no struggle with sin outside of good death. When you become a Christian... The epic change is so great, it's so magnificent, it's so cosmic, it's so definitive that you begin to struggle with sin for the first time in your life. You now can fight it. And you're in a march to Berlin that you can't lose. You will eventually win, and it's called glorification at the end of your life. How does a good death help us in our struggle for life change? How does a good death make a difference in your struggle for sin? The first answer is you've already experienced an epic change if you're a Christian. 
landmark, definitive. The second answer is found in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. A good friend of mine told me about a friend of his who was going on his first car date. Not to be confused with a non-car date. Everyone knows that a car date is much more important than a non-car date. I don't, as a father of girls, care about the non-car dates. Because I will be at the ball game. I will be everywhere there's a non-car date. (laughs) Right? But a car date is scarier for a dad. A car date is I'm putting my princess into the car of a baboon. That I have not gotten over with yet. All right, so as the calendar date was approaching for the first car date, um, this friend of my friend kept waiting for his dad to sit him down to have the what? The talk. You know, a really stern lecture on such topics and sundry topics as like uh, driving safely, getting her home before the, um, her curfew, and of course, no PDA. But it's not the PDA that you think, because you're thinking no public displays of affection, but I'm thinking of no private displays of affection. It's the private displays of affection that bother me, not the public displays of affection. So he's waiting for that talk, right? So when the time came for him to leave, his dad gave him the car, keys, and then followed him out to the car. And he's thinking, here it comes, the talk, right? But his dad didn't, handed him the keys. And then said, Clay, remember who you are. Son, remember who you are. Clay said, those five words impacted me, changed me, like no lecture could even touch. Paul is saying to you and me, remember who you are. You're not a slave. You're not a slave to sin. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are loved. What you crave and fight your whole life for, you already have. You're an acceptable, perfect, righteous, honorable person because of Jesus. You died to sin's reign rule, control, and power. Remember who you are. Be who you are. Sinclair Ferguson says, to continue in sin would not only be a contradiction of theology, but a contradiction of identity. It's not who you are anymore. You're not a slave to sin. Now let that push in to your struggle for life change and your struggle with sin.
Tupac was in the midst of a murderous verbal assault with another man. When this, this elderly woman sees it, she doesn't know who he is, just thinks he's another troubled youth, sees it happening. Everyone else sees it happening and flees because they know violence is on its way. But this woman, she strides right into the midst of these two guys that are face to face, veins popping out, ready for something to happen, a weapon to be pulled, someone to die, and she reaches in and she puts her hand on his arm. If you want to see this interview, you go to 30 for 30 and you watch Tyson and Tupac in Vegas. Tupac said his life changed by this encounter. It was so powerful, so powerful, he started weeping as she spoke. And the tears obviously were that of the immediate, they were connecting to the immediate rage and anger that he was feeling in the moment, but these tears were connecting to an anchoring anger that went deep down into his soul. And she literally wiped his face with her hands. Two worlds collided. The world of an up-and-coming gangster rapper, right? And an elderly stateswoman poet named Dr. Maya Angelou. What did she do? How did she change him? This is what she said to him. Young man, when was the last time that anyone told you that it's all for you? It's all for you that we live 300 years on the edge of a dime so that you can exist. When was the last time? Did you know that we stood on a slave ship decks and stood on auction, auction blocks and were hosed down like dogs for you so you could live? Son, when was the last time someone told you that? When was the last time someone told you it's all for you? That Jesus was sold on a slave block for you? That he was beaten like a dog? for you, that Jesus was hung naked on a cross, the epitome of shame for you, that Jesus was driven outside so you could be let in, that Jesus was rejected in ways that are actually completely disintegrating as a person so that you could be accepted. That Jesus died so that the domain, the savagery of sin would be broken. That Jesus died so that you could be set free. It's all for you. When was the last time? Remember who you are. Be who you are. It's all for you.